are we willing to die? And that, the minute you start thinking on that level, it's, I just never expected that in my life. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm super excited and grateful for this very special interview. And without further ado, let me go ahead and edify the woman properly. Chaya Lester is a psychotherapist, inspirational speaker, and spiritual guide. She's also a wordsmith, performance artist, and unapologetic mystic, passionate about bringing Torah to life. Synthesizing ancient Jewish wisdom, cutting-edge psychology, and the arts, Chaya's work is all focused on the sole goal of helping people thrive. Chaya holds an Ivy League BA in Religious Studies and MA in Clinical Psychology. She also did extensive doctoral work at Oxford University on the theme of experiential Torah learning. As co-director of Jerusalem's Shalev Center for Jewish Personal Growth, Chaya teaches workshops and classes to locals and visitors alike. Her one-woman show about Israel, Babel's Daughter, has been hailed as a masterpiece by audiences from around the world. Chaya leads transformative workshops both in Israel and internationally. As a spiritual tour guide, Chaya has had the honor of guiding thousands of visitors in Israel. Among them are VIP visitors such as pop star Alicia Keys, Demi Lovato, Chinese billionaires, and U.S. senators. Chaya facilitates profoundly unique experiences, allowing visitors to see their trip to Israel as a truly life-transforming journey. Chaya lives with her husband, my good friend, Rabbi Hillel Lester, and their four energetic children in the vibrant heart Jerusalem. Chaya, welcome. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. Oh, so nice to be here. I want, if you would, for a moment, to reminisce on your family making Aliyah. Tell me something about that. I think the the, uh, the seeds of the Aliyah were planted many decades ago, really when I first came to Israel and absolutely fell in love with the place. I like to say that I went from living my life according to a five-year plan to a 5,000-year plan the minute I got to Israel and just saw the majesty, the beauty of Jewish history and the Jewish story, the narrative of the Jewish people in exile and being brought home. And the poetry of that just spoke straight to my soul. And my really, my first times in Israel was when I was in, in high school and went on the march of the living to the concentration camps of Eastern Europe and then to Israel. And that was like my first awakening and just kept on coming back year after year after that, and until eventually after college, I made Aliyah at that point. And then a couple of different degrees in different places for my studies, and then ended up in Berkeley, getting my master's in clinical psychology and met up with my now husband, Hillel. And thank God we both shared this adventurous vision of coming back to Israel and in the beginning, I will say, we did not necessarily know at that time, once we got married and came back together, we thought Hillel was going to do his rabbinic work and get his smicha, his ordination, and then we we're going to come back to America. But then three years into his ordination, we're like, we cannot possibly leave 
So we've rooted in so deeply to the soil of this place, the soul and the soil of this land, and, and raised our kids here. And certainly times like this historic crossroads that we're at right now, I look back at, at that, at those decisions, and, um, and I see the enormity of the decision that we made to raise our family here and the commitment and all of the and all that comes with it. So we're living, we're living a whole new flavor of our Aliyah since this war, I'd say, where it's just, it's taken on whole new dimensions and it's been extraordinary. Thank God. Amazing. And I definitely want to get to life now and what's happening and give people an update really from the ground of what's happening in your life there. Talk a little bit about the Shalev Center and your work that you do so people can have more of a sense of that and and how they can connect with it. So that was the other wonderful thing that happened in our decision to, to stay in Israel was, okay, how can we do, do the live the passions professionally that we want to? And so we came up with this beautiful idea. I'm, I'm a psychotherapist. My husband, we're both therapists and Jewish educators. And so we just decided to make this synthesis of, of psychology and healing work along with Jewish wisdom. And we founded the Shalev Center about 13 years ago. And with this idea of we created workshops, couples workshop, where we do couples work that's like a combination of Imago meets the Arizal's Kabbalistic paradigms. And we so we bring together Jewish wisdom with psychology and for transformation and healing. And so we've been and I, we leave retreats and been really deep gratifying healing work that's what the Shalev Center is and we both we do it together and it's really it's a wonderful partnership and we've gotten the opportunity from the Shalev Center where we do the healing work and the retreats then also branching out and doing spiritual tourism I've done a lot of spiritual tourism when there is tourism here and like like you said with with my bio I, I have this one woman show there's just all these pieces like anybody, any creative person, I think we all have so many, we have passions and we have um, we have all the array of gifts that we work with. And so mine have been healing and psychology as well as spirituality and creative expression and poetry and spoken word. And so I just try to find whatever creative ways to braid all that together. And the Shalev Center has been a really wonderful vehicle for kind of doing whatever God sends our way. I love it. And in terms of the people that come to the Shalev Center, is it maybe prior to COVID, it was more locals in person or has it always been internationally online in Hebrew and English? Talk a little bit about that so people have a sense of who's coming and also who's invited. Everyone's invited. It's it's really mixed. You know, half of my clients are international and on Zoom and and half of the people are, are local and come here to to work in person. The retreats we've are mostly Israelis, Anglo Israelis, so English speakers. I've not yet perfected my Hebrew to the point where I can really where I do therapy in Hebrew. Although just recently I started working with a, a woman who was evacuated from Nativot. It was either she was gonna work with me or nobody at all. And and so it was just okay, we're gonna work in Hebrew and so it's a little out of my comfort zone. So mostly it's English speakers. We live in an English-speaking bubble here, and it's, it's how it works. It's how we've made it sustainable for us to to be in our totally out of our comfort zone and yet comfortable enough in in our native tongue. So it's, it's really been a mix, and it really, like I said, it's really who God sends us. So it's really going to just be dependent on who's called into the work at, at any given time. Here's a question for you: What was your, really your vision? or your life and your family moving to Israel, or maybe you're living it right now. Did you have a 
a, a vision of, of the future, which you're now in. Yeah, I think that's exactly it is. And that's how we create our realities. Humbling forward is through our imagination and our visualization and our highest ideals. Listen, I've always been like, like you said, with, with the bio, I'm a, like unashamed, unabashed mystic. Like I've always been a mystic. As when I was a kid, age age 13, if you remember the Lockerbie plane, I was this 13-year-old and I had this dream about a plane coming from London to New York and exploding. And I popped up out of bed and I was like, oh my God, that was so intense. And I ran to my parents' TV screen and I turned on, I turned on the television back in the day when you had to turn on the television. And there was my dream. When it was the the Lockerbie, it was one of the first hijackings of a plane, apparently by some representative of the PLO would hijack this plane and and it was everybody was killed and so for me as like a 13 year old having this strange dream about this thing that ended up coming true was this sort of the cognitive dissonance of my I, I grew up in Memphis Tennessee the cognitive dissonance of my life in Memphis a totally secular reality and then these kind of spiritual moments or insights or awakenings or foreseeings that that I would have through my dreams and over time just nurturing my spirit, my spiritual life more and receiving more and more direction and vision. You asked about vision. So receiving more and more vision of where I'm meant to be going. And, and it led here. And it really led here. And so I, I think I've lived on my dreams and I've lived on my spiritual callings and then put that into the full manifestation of a household with children, where it's not just some fanciful spiritual imaginings, but it becomes very tangible material world with all of its with all of its details and repercussions. And yes, our vision was let's create the line. We're going to be the ancestors who are the ones who came back to Israel after 2,000 years of exile of our family lines. And we're going to be we're going to be the generation to come back and 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 start start the line forward here in the soil of Israel. So that's always been our our guiding star is we want to be the ones to create the the family tree in in this soil. I, I like to say that this is the best Gilgul yet. Gilgul meaning reincarnation. It's like incarnate this incarnation is what an opportunity to be living this living the prayers of my ancestors, the fulfillment of the prayers of my ancestors and hopefully allowing my children and grandchildren and descendants to to live according to the national dream the prophetic dream of our people it's always been about aligning the most practical mundane details to the highest possible vision forward for and fully informed with that 5000 year vision and you're living it and we talk about and we're the, living it visions and dreams and that's the one thing. And then when you put it on your calendar, it gets closer. And then when you're like actually making hummus in the kitchen, it's real. You're there. So that's beautiful. Here's an interesting question for you. How do you talk to your children about God? Nonstop. It's my poor kids. Oh, my God. Listen, God for me is it's a, it's a very vital, living, experiential, divine. It's something that I strive to not just have a theoretical understanding of God, but I quest after mystical experiences and tangible encounters with the divine as my daily bread. I tell them stories. I tell them all of my dreams and my all, all my crazy dreams of things that came true and and my own prayer experiences. So really talking a lot from my own personal experience, which 
for better or for worse, because I think I'm a little unique. Like, I don't think my, I don't know if my kids are going to have prophetic dreams in the way that I've had. I know, I don't know what their relationship with God has been, but so I've shared kind of mine. And certainly every once in a while, my girl, I have two girls and two boys. Every once in a while, my girls will get prickly around. Ah, but why is it a man? Why? Like they'll, they have some questions and issues of, of, that are sometimes more complex religiously. And I try to just answer to the best of my abilities based on my great love of God and the ways that I've seen God in my life. If we can transition, I want to talk a little bit on, you guys were in Jerusalem, in Nachlaut, I think on October 7th. And maybe you can talk about the experience for you guys there and then around that time period. And then I have some questions moving forward, whatever you want to share about that. So I want to say first that a few days before October 7th, I had a dream. And in that dream, it was a dream about Simchat Torah. So it was a dream about October 7th. This was like October 5th. And in that dream, I was putting out the Kiddush. I was in charge of the Kiddush. I was setting up the Kiddush at the Shul. And this humongous wind came into the synagogue and just started blowing things off of the wall. And everybody was terrified and it was very violent, and a part of the wall flew and almost hit one of my kids. And I'm like, everybody watch out. And then we see, we look around, we see that everybody's okay, and we start to dance. And we dance just with this humongous fervor and joy. And then as part of the dancing, I start to fly. I start to fly up <laughs> in the middle of this dancing, and I fly until I get to Philadelphia, to the University of Pennsylvania, which is where I went to school. And I'm standing in front of a fraternity house. On the ground of the fraternity house in the grass was what it was burnt into the grass was the word high life. And I sat there in the dream and I was like, what a strange combination. I thought to myself in the dream of this very violent burning of this, this searing of this message into the grass but yet the message is chai, it's life. And what a strange image as well, the, the terror of the wind that came and flew in and then the ecstasy of the dance that followed. So it was a curious dream to me at the time. And then of course, come October 7th, and it felt like really such a premonition because that's exactly what happened was we, we woke up in the morning, my husband and boys went ahead and went to shoal and I was actually at home at that point and the siren went off and we of course uh, me and the girls run into the we have across the little alley where we live we have our neighbors let us come and partake of their safe room and so we all went in there and a bunch of people from off the street even came into this down these stairs and into the safe room there and and we're like ah this has happened not often, but it's happened before. Did not think so much of it and until the siren died down and we came out and then another siren. We went back in and this happened a few times and we're like, wait, this isn't the norm that it's been for the past decade and a half. It, it was something was different. And at that point, I think, I don't know how many sirens in, at some point <clears throat> Hillel showed up and and we went back into and back into the bomb shelter. And at this point, a man from the street 
also came into the bomb shelter and he said, he was a religious man. He said, I checked the news and he started telling us about what was going on in the South. And we were just, we, we couldn't, it was like, we couldn't even compute really. What does this mean? And certainly did not have a full picture, but we, so Hillel and I like started having really serious discussion about what do we do? Do we just hunker down at home for all of Simcha's Torah? Like I was supposed to be in charge of the Kiddush. Like I needed to take things. I had things I needed to do. Like we were going to be there when our shul, when we do Simcha's Torah, it goes from like eight in the morning till four in the, four thirty in the afternoon, usually on a normal Simcha's Torah. It's a long journey, but that was our plan was to be there entirely the whole day. And I was like, do we go there? Cause we have to walk there. And what if people from East Jerusalem, what if violent people from East Jerusalem start filling the streets? We're, we're about a 25-minute walk from East Jerusalem. We're not so far. And so we just, we had to really deliberate how we wanted to manage it. And we decided that we were going to walk, we were going to walk to Shul along back streets, not on the main streets to get to our Shul. On back streets, we're going to take everything with us. We're going to take everything that we're going to possibly need for who knows how long and we get to, and we do it. We're terrified. I'm terrified as we're walking. I, I'm really you're, terrified you're, that somebody's going to attack us. Were you with your kids too? All four kids? So my boys were already at Shul. My husband had come back to figure out what to do. So then we bring the girls and yeah, we all go back to Shul. Okay. And, and we get there and like I said, in the dream, ecstatic dancing, but not in the normal Shul. Underneath our shul is a huge, it's like the local bomb shelter underneath a big school. Enormous, beautiful bomb shelter became our shul. And we just, for hours and hours, we just prayed and danced with so much spiritual intensity. And I knew, not most people did not know what was really going on. I knew a little bit from that guy. And um, we just prayed our way through it with our beautiful family of community and it was an extraordinary it was an unforgettable connective heartbreaking glorious all of those dialectics from October 7th till this moment like it has been that dialectic of this is awful and this is awe-inspiring awe and awful just so mixed together constantly so that day for sure the high blazoned into the grass like the it's that particular flavor of paradoxical intensity has been the definition of the past of this war for us and i think for everybody and when you talk about i intuitively get what you're saying when you're saying it's full of awe as in awesomeness awe, reverence and awful talk about the awe talk about the that's not it for you, because I think if you can unpack a little bit, it'll be very valuable for people. You walk through the streets, and it's like I walk through the streets, and every soldier I see, I just I love them like my own child or like my own brother. You remember, right? Remember 9-11? Yeah. It's like ongoing 9-11. It's like that intensity that you felt on 9-11 of everybody next to you, you just love them and you feel so deeply, intensely connected. And it's a kind of a depth of connection that I, I don't, I, I don't know what it's like for Jews outside of Israel. Like, I don't know. I, I think it's also been a very deep and connective experience in its own ways. And for sure it is here because people are literally giving up their lives for this. You know, 
that something happens when you are when you make that decision. And I'll say this, because we days after October 7th, as we were watching everything unfold, my family for sure was calling me up and being like, you guys get out of there. This is not worth this could go really bad and you could die. And we had to make very tough decisions about are we willing to die? And that the minute you start thinking on that level, it's I just never expected that in my life to be living with that level of engagement of life or death values. And what are my life or death values? And my life or death value is to live here. Is to, if God forbid, we're not, I don't think we're going to die, but we know a lot of people who have died for to be here and to protect this place and to protect the Jewish people to stand against the darkness with your entire being, willing to give up everything to fight off the darkness. And when I don't know, something about living on that strata of existence is it's deeply connective and life-defining in a way that I really can't. It's ineffable. It's really ineffable. Cannot give expression to it adequately. I got it. I think that the, the level of depth you experience is for me, the level of depth I experience in my life is always in relationship to the possibility of not being alive. And I, as this part of my spiritual practice, I think about that a lot, not in a morbid way. I'm going to die. Although, yeah, that's the only thing that we all know. Okay. Besides that, yeah. but having it in your face, in your space, and that your life is a, is a, is a burning testimony of values it makes it so deeply meaningful and so connective and so vibrant yeah. i absolutely get what you're saying and i think there's a famous teaching i forget who brought this down but basically when someone passes on their influence expands beyond space and time and beyond locality right for example after the Rebbe passed away his influence which just rippled out in such a powerful way right so all those souls that that left us that 1400 on the very first day all of the shamot their souls their energy went back into the jewish people and literally infused them with this incredible energy which is how i part of how i describe it and how it feels does that resonate with you everything resonating very much with me absolutely Tell me, it's been almost 100 days now and very much still at war and there's still hostages that haven't returned and we're praying for them every day. What is life like now? How does it, is it anything close to what it felt like prior to October 7th? And maybe describe that for people here in the States. Yeah. So we're in Jerusalem. So we've, in a lot of ways, had it pretty easy compared, obviously, to the people in the South. Obviously, to the people in the North, Almost 200,000 people evacuated from both of those borders and who are living in, in hotels and in homes right here in our neighborhood. We have a number, like 25 families that we are in touch with of evacuated families who are living here from Steyrot and other places. So we've been a safe haven here in Jerusalem. We've, since October 7th, we've had a handful of sirens and rockets enough but not nearly what has been happening in the center and in tel aviv and so i think in tel aviv it's in the center 
in the North and the South, it's obviously very intense. And then in the West Bank. So we don't, I think we've been like a little bit shielded. So our kids were able to go back to school within several weeks and we were able to get back to work and and life has been pretty normal, except that everybody is just totally engaged with the war consistently in terms of just being up to date on everything that's going on and trying to take take care of the evacuated families. And that's been a big part of what we've been doing, raising money for soldiers, trying to get things to soldiers. There's been a frenzy of chesed and of giving and of, of people just doing whatever they can to help everybody else. There's been, it's really been a frenzy, I'd say, which is, it's been amazing as a mental health professional. I think it's been a little bit intense in terms of that's one way that people have been expressing their trauma is like a frenzy of helping. And thank God it's great. But so it's been the energy of that has been intense. And we've just been working on trying to find our ways to regulate and and stay healthy. So turning on, I, there's this, I love, there's all this, there's like a genre of Israeli war songs that are really fun and upbeat <laughs> and like powerful and meaningful, these war song genre, that's what I call it. And so we'll just turn those on and dance often and pray and cry and dance. And it's just, that's, there's an, there's a daily grappling with the war and the reality and the intensity of it. There's like the concentric circles of trauma. And there's those who are at the that, those center circles where they're the ones getting losing their life or losing their loved ones. And there's these concentric circles. So we've I, our family has been a little bit on an outer circle because our oldest kids are 16. So we have not been in those center circles. We have gone to known several people who have been killed soldiers and and also on October 7th. So we've been to funerals and that's been very intense. Our next door neighbors have three sons who are in Gaza, fighting in Gaza, who they were not in touch with at all for months. Very, very intense for them. And this past Shabbos, I'm walking to Shul and there I see the three of them. They're home, finally sent home for the first time. They were all there for Shabbos, these beautiful, majestic men. And um, I started crying when I saw them. I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe you're here because we've been praying for them very intensely and not knowing what was going on. But it's my next door neighbor's kids. It's not mine. They're my other neighbor, son on the northern border, one of my dear friends and community members, husband has been gone on the northern border so we're supporting her. We have women's groups where we make space to process. It's been really intense. Here's a question. So you talked about the frenzy of, of help and helpful activity. So for people that are watching this, is there anywhere you would like to direct people for what can people say in, in North America? How can we help? Yeah, thank you. I certainly, there are a couple of places I've sent people. So one is to a fund that we have to help the family evacuated families here in the neighborhood where every week we give them enough money to go and do their grocery shopping. And so there, there's a fund for that that I can definitely give you a, a link to. I also, my my good friend whose husband, Udi Hammerman, is up north on the northern border. On the north, 
all the soldiers, like hearing stories, we're hearing more stories now because some of the soldiers are coming back and we have clients, some of our clients are soldiers. And so we're hearing more stories about just how intense it is for the soldiers fighting just on a a survival level, not even about being attacked, but just living in the elements. So my my friend up north, whose husband is up north, they had to prepare for winter. They're living out in a forest on the border watching Lebanon. And they didn't, they weren't given even tents. They had to build, they had to raise their own money. What they did was they raised their own money and bought wood and built themselves shelter. The government wasn't, the army wasn't just providing everybody with everything that they needed. No, they took their own money. I know another friend who said that his battalion in Gaza raised their own money to buy their own drone, like a high-level drone, that they just were like, we need a drone. (laughs) The army's not giving us a drone. So we raised our own money to get a drone that's really helping us with this tactical issue and that. There's so much of what's going on. You think that there's this governing body that's handling everything. It's just like us, that frenzy is because it's needed. So also if there's an ongoing need for just basic life, survival. So I also have a a link to uh, my friend on the northern border who is trying to just live and in very intense conditions very challenging day-to-day survival conditions beyond being attacked, just living in the elements. So those are two things that come to my mind. And I don't even, I can't even, when I'm I'm saying this, I can't even imagine that. I can't can't actually imagine what that must be like for them. Yeah, a question. So your friend that went up to the Lebanese border, he's enlisted in the army or he just chose to do that to go and explain a little more. I probably shouldn't have said his name because I don't know what. Anyway, sorry. He has four kids. This man is a genius. He has a doctorate. He's a psychologist, brilliant person, and happens to be just incredibly courageous and high values. He's the one who reads Torah and leads half of the davening at our shul. Just incredible quality individual. And he, there are people that we know who are older. I mean, almost 50. So older who are Miluim Nikim. So they're in Miluim. That is to say, they're not the 18 to 20 year old young men who are down fighting in Gaza as much. So they have chosen to be, to give their time. And they're there somewhat volunteer, volunteer wise. And they, but he's been there and left his family. I have another friend who left his family and has been serving. And these are guys like you, you who are like this, if I don't do it, Who's going to do it? And who've just given up everything? They ha- they don't they haven't made made a penny, and they're, they're they left left their businesses, and they don't know what's going to you know one of my friends doesn't know what's going to happen to his business. It could it could be gone by the by the time he tries to come back and revive it. Like it's and he's not having to do it; he's choosing to do it. Incredible caliber of people. You know, there's this idea of in, in Kabbalah of the or. The makif and the orpanimi, the or makif is this idea of a surrounding light. The orpanimi is like the integrated light of consciousness. So the idea of an or makif is that we have a potential of who are the grandeur of who our souls can be, and it's but it's not yet manifested or or activated or integrated. And things like a war 
takes those potentials that are surrounding us, like all my potential heroism, and it, it creates an activation and integration of those lights like nothing else. Absolutely. Wow. So we're just witnessing that everywhere. Heroism. Yeah, it's a master exfoliant. Quick question. I'm, I'm here actually at the JCC campus, and it's largely Israeli where I am. I just led this meditation, and it was like 90% Israelis that mostly speak Hebrew and a couple of oh. Anglos. And my kids' school is also like 60%, 50-60% Israelis. And so I, we have a lot of Israeli friends, and I feel like I'm half Israeli in my life and half Californian. And one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of my Israeli friends, like they listen to news hour and hours a day, what's happening. And I think maybe that's a thing from being in Israel and needing to know what's going on. My question for you is, how can people here and there balance out taking in the information of what's happening and taking care of themselves? How do you counsel people around that? I like to think about it, that we have a symptom feedback system. And if you're doing too much or listening too much or volunteering too much or whatever you're doing, if it's too much, then your system will come up with some symptom. You'll get sick or you'll feel anxious or you won't be able to sleep at night or you'll do too much emotional eating or whatever it is. And that's just a feedback system. If there's things that you're not being able to quite control then those are really good indicators that you're doing too much. So I say just keep listening. I think the biggest one I know for me was for sure in the beginning was my sleep being disturbed and not sleeping. And sleep is a really quick symptom to pop up when you're over anxious. And so I would notice when I was watching too much news or certain types of news if I wasn't sleeping, then I needed to cut that down. It's just about, I've had some clients who have gone into mania. Like there have been a lot, there has been a, people who are going to a manic state in response to everything. And okay, that's your, that mania is like, it's here to show you that you need to slow it down. So, and then there's people that go to the, like people go their different ways in response. Some people will turn up, there's the phone speeds, right? It's like you want one. People, a lot of people go into 1.5 speed. A lot of people also go in 0.75 or like turning it down and not being able to function. And you want to try to stay balanced and notice when the speeds are going too high or too low. And I think it's, it's really all about the balance. And obviously, we're, we're not, we should be feeling and we should be anxious and there, we should be having nightmares. That's all appropriate. But as much as we can, to just try to stay aware of our symptoms as guidance for us as we're trying to navigate just incredibly, incredible crisis. And then there's also that piece about using an emergency for the emergence that it brings. And like we said before about that heroism and the integration of our potential that can come through it, there's a lot of really important empowerment that and clarification of self and mission and values. There's a lot of really positive psychological growth that's happening for everybody around this. And it's it's like you got to stay that in that dialectic of I'm freaking out and I'm not handling this well. And here's the ways I'm growing. And I got this of just going kind of step by step, back and forth, dialectical behavioral approach of knowing that we're going to get thrown off and we're going to go deep and then we're going to restabilize and just doing that self-regulation 
along the way. This is that's the the vessels and the tools that we're really all having to refine right now. I love it. That's great. Wise counsel. Okay, two final questions for you. And if there's anything else you want to talk about, let me know. So first question is really what is your vision for the future here in Israel? Yeah. Okay, so with this, I'll, I'll answer with another one of my dreams. And I feel a little silly talking about my dreams, but it is for me my, a vital lifeline um, to my own alignment um, with my highest truth. And so some people don't resonate with it, and that's okay. I'm going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> when October 7th happened, I just had this image that kept coming back to me. There was the dream about the Philadelphia and UPenn. It was so interesting when finally UPenn became like the this kind of like the center of this poison Ivy League reality. But so there was that dream. But what was really striking me after October 7th was the memory of a particular dream that I had. And I couldn't quite remember it, but I kept on referring back to it in my head and brought me a lot of comfort. And I'm using this because it's really my answer to your question, which is so finally about October 9th, I was like, I just got to find this dream. So I, I do this thing where I, I every morning when I wake up, I remember my dream and I, I put it into my phone. This is a really good thing to do is just to like make a little voice message to yourself of your dream so you don't forget it. And then every three weeks or so, I write them down. So I have a Google Doc where I write down all my dreams. And the Google Doc's really nice because it has all of the all the dreams in one place. And all you have to do is go into find and you put in a word and it takes you to that dream. So I, I found, I remember the dream was about this tree. So I put in the word tree and I go back and I find this dream and I look at the date of the dream and the date is exactly one year to the day that I was reading it one year before. So, okay, that's interesting. And, and the dream is actually a two-part dream. And I forgot the first part was really important. First part of the dream was October 7th, a, a full-on attack. It was a horrific attack with bombs and with Hamas terrorists, the full, the full thing and awful. And I woke, it was so horrific that I woke myself up from the dream and I just prayed to God. I was like, dear God. And I wrote this, I, mean, I recorded this into my phone. I was like, dear God, how dare you do this to us? How dare, we already went through the Holocaust. I cannot believe that you would be doing this to us again. I was in, it was like this very disturbed and very like oh, this Holocaust level. But I, I know also it was very important to go back into nightmares. After you wake up from it, it's important to be fearless and go back in to see what's on the other side of the scary material. So I went back to sleep. And the second dream was the one that I had remembered. And the second dream was, it was a messianic era. It's an era of redemption. We were all wearing beautiful clothes and dancing underneath this beautiful, fruitful tree. And I had my grandchildren with me. And I had this little phone or something where I'm able to show them all the stages that allowed us to get to this messianic moment. And I showed them the first stage, which was that first dream of the attack. And I showed them the, the picture. And, and, it, and it comes in the form of this tree that gets burnt out. And it's a burnt out husk. And I show them frame after frame, and you have to take out the burnt out husk, and they're taking it away, and they're bringing in a new tree. And this tree, the old tree, wasn't able to bear fruit. But this new tree that they bring in, it's a little tree. They bring it in, they plant it, and, it's, and it grows. And it shows like the stages of this tree's growth until it finally becomes a, a fruit-giving tree. And there was a big one, and then there was also a smaller one that went under the same process. Don't know what any of it means. Oh, and there was a sense of we have all gone through this process and we are a totally refined people. 
we of, of God consciousness. We have reached unitary God consciousness where we know that anything that's being sent to us it was not a full era of peace. There was still like danger around the borders, but we didn't care because we were so connected to God that we knew that whatever God's going to send, it's from God. We can handle it. And we're going to sit under this tree and rejoice. And it was one incredible dream. And I woke up from that dream and I recorded that one. And I said, I know that this is a prophetic dream. I don't know what it means. I don't know what the tree represents. I don't know what the big one is, what the little one, I don't know. I wish I knew. I'm not, I don't know though. Um, but I knew that it was a prophetic dream. And that vision has been my guiding light of we, there is some process here that is taking us to a new paradigm that's a that's going to be a fruitful paradigm in the way that the old paradigm didn't work. It didn't work. So whether whether that means I mean, who knows? Maybe it's the the old paradigm of of Hamas doesn't work, and it needs to get rid of Hamas fully and have a partner who we can be a Palestinian partnership or a state. I, I don't know exactly what it's going to mean, but I do think we have an opportunity here in this awful thing, an opportunity for really rooting out something that wasn't working and bringing in something that will bear fruit. I have a lot of hope around it, mostly because I had this incredible dream and I really trust my dreams. If I didn't have the dream, I'd be a little more freaked out right now. But the dream literally has given me guidance and comfort that I can't even in a worldly manner account for how helpful it's been for me to have this vision of, I know this is leading us to something truly redemptive and a new paradigm and it's going to be good. It's going to be great. And we are getting refined, greatly refined in the process. I love it. Okay. So bonus question. Talk about Mashiach. What's Mashiach look like for you? Are we in the war of Gog, Magog? Where are we at? And what do we have to look forward to? Let me say this one thing about my, my favorite Torah about Mashiach. So we have the concept of Geula. Geula means the, redemp- the re- redemption, Messianic era. And then there's this concept of Gola, which means the exiled consciousness. So we have this paradigm where we have the Geula, which is this thing that we're all wanting, this Messianic era. And then we have the Gola, which is the exiled consciousness. And the Jewish people have been in exile for all the thousands of years and et cetera, and on our own individual exiled consciousness as well. So the word Geula and the word Gola are the same exact word, except for one thing, that Geula takes the letters of Gola and inserts one extra letter, and that's the Aleph. You put the Aleph right down into the middle of Gola and you get Geula. And the Aleph, according to Chabad Hasidut, the Lubavitcher Rebbe talks about how the Aleph is the letter of Aluf HaOlam, which means the master of the universe, the champion of the universe is the Aleph. So if you like bring in God consciousness into the middle of that exiled material, all that Gola junk, you insert this Aleph, it transforms that all that painful material into the blossoming redemptive material. So the Aleph represents the divine consciousness. Aleph also is the, the letters of Aleph can also be can also spell the word Pela, which means miracle. So it brings in miraculous consciousness, miraculous in the sense that it's beyond the nature, it's beyond the mundane. It's like something wondrous. And then also the Aleph represents Olpana, which means like an Olpan, means schooling and instruction. And that it's through a process of schooling and education and instruction and growth and learning that we transform that negative gola into the gula. We cannot have gaula 
without the golem material. It won't exist. It's the necessary ingredients for our redemption is all this negativity and all this pain and all this horror. It's the same material. That is how I view the Messianic era, is it's taking all of the challenges and finding the divine in it and finding godliness in it. And that's happening in our own consciousness, individually, each of us individually. I'm able to find God in my challenges in my life, and I'm able to grow through them and know that they are here for my good, and I work with them, and I and I pray through them. I do that individually, and then on a national and global level, there is that refinement and that awareness of the divine that trickles down. This real trickle-down theory of that, it trickles down into every cell of our reality and creates new political realities. It creates new en- environmental realities and financial and <laughs> on all the levels. I'm trained to be a, a ketamine-assisted psychotherapist. So using psychedelics as medicine for healing, I feel there's real pathways that are emerging for the kind of holistic healing that we each need, all of us need individually that will impact on larger collective levels. I see that coming. It's a long, slow process in my dream. I was pretty old, but we got there in my lifetime, not to the place where there's only peace and there's no more conflict and everything's perfect, but to a place of, I know God's in control and enough, a critical mass of us know that enough that imbues reality with the fruitfulness and the light that allows the pain to be dissolved into joy. Beautiful. I love it. Okay. Final question for you, Kaya. And thank you for your time. I know it's late where you are. I really appreciate your, your wisdom. And I look forward to having Hillel on a subsequent episode as well. What does the Jewish world need now most and why? I mean, on a practical level, I think we need really good haspera. We need really, we need a better ways of communicating our truth in a world overrun by misinformation and and conspiracy and lies. And we're just like the thing at the Hague today is so disturbing to me. And we need to somehow be communicating our truth. We need to be the light into the nations right now. Right now, we can't be hating the nations. We need, if we're going to be a light to the nations, we need to be loving the nations, even if they're hating us. And we need to be teaching the nations and, and communicating and educating somehow better than what we're doing right now, educating the world about the Jewish story and the rightness of our being here and what we're up against and the evilness that we're fighting. And that we need to be expressing that better. So, on a practical level, I think that's what we need. On a spiritual level, like for me, I think that we all need to taste God. Enough with the Judaism that's about intellectual learning. Enough with, or even just halacha, or like we need to be having true experiences of the divine and that, and experiencing a divine consciousness through breath work, through our own healing processes. We need to heal and and access the divine light within us and that shouldn't just be some fluffy thing i I believe very very immensely in in the power of our dreams and our unconscious and the collective unconscious and we need to start honoring that more instead of the the dishonoring of the unconscious material and dreams and spirituality we need to the world needs to start valuing that the jewish world needs to start valuing and training and educating our children more towards that experiential taste of God, not just some theoretical story about 
not tasting God, but like talking about God. That's irrelevant. <laughs> you just need to taste God. So we need to find ways to do that and educate better in those directions. And we've got to have a lot of compassion on ourselves too. This is so intense. This is so, it's such chaos, such upheaval. And just staying connected to each other in our communities and with a lot of love, unity, definitely unity, um, trying to get beyond our divisions within the Jewish world. Oh my God, we see it in Israel. It's so painful. It's been such a joy and a relief to not have all the disunity that we were plagued by. And I'm really nervous about it coming back. But what we've tasted here and the unity and the connection and the love and the family in Israel and also amongst the Jewish people worldwide has just been such a, such a joy. And I hope that continues. Amen. Thank you so much for your time. I want to end with a blessing. podcast. Hashem should bless you and your family with peace, shalom, and many more people coming to you for your vast and deep skill set, because I think you have a lot of what people are looking for right now, which is concrete tools for how to deal with a chaotic situation. Not only that, but also that you should be a conduit for people to experience God, to taste God, as you say, because I absolutely agree that's what we need. This is not theory anymore. The, the rehearsal is over. The gig is mm. on now. And that people should uh, feel comfortable asking for help. And even if they have no experience and had a challenging relationship with the concept of God or with God, they should be open to putting in the work into that relationship, like any relationship, which requires work and which requires uh, confrontation and getting uncomfortable and growing and opening because that light of God consciousness is what we so desperately need. I'm just honored to have you guys in my life and Hillel as a 25 years now. We've been friends for a long time. So um, thank you so much for making some time. And there'll be some links below to connect to them on the Shalev Center and other things that they're doing. I wish you the best. Blessings in your shlichut and in the work. God, how many people you're touching and the music and the light and the wisdom that you're bringing is just so precious and so needed. And it should just have a strong vessel to continue to share the light. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul K. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps us more than you know. Drop a review. Share this with friends and family, people you think would enjoy the content. And we'll see you on the next episode.